Thanks, Lynn, very much indeed. Let's uh, spend some moments together, shall we, in God's Word this morning, picking up our theme, Love Exposed. And uh, just to help get us orientated, remember where we were last week, thinking about 1 John chapter 4 reminds us very famously that God is love, and it begs us to ask the question, well, what, what, what is that love like? And uh, the verses go on to, to remind us, to show us that love is the way that God behaves. This is how God showed His love. This is, it's, the love is what God does. Everything that God does is, is motivated, driven by uh, love. So it begins to help us get a picture of what God wants to uh, uh, teach us when He says, love God and love one another. And so we're encouraged, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So that was all uh, uh, by means of introduction last week, and we looked at a very familiar uh, understanding of, of the love that Jesus expresses, his tender-heartedness, his compassion, his tender love. Uh, and this morning, we're, we're going to move on to uh, look at his tough love. Again, life of Jesus, same Jesus, same love, uh, a different aspect, a different facet for us to get our heads around. But the, the important thing is before we leap on to something else, in fact, we can't really get our heads around tough love uh, unless we've known God's tender love. So the question is, well, what's God been doing in you as you thought about what it is to have a tender Hard. What's God been doing in you as you've thought about God having, uh, uh, wanting you to have a tender heart? Uh, Dave Morris is going to come and just share uh, for a couple of moments about uh, what God's been speaking to him about. Good morning. This um, really follows on from what um, Simon has been saying. I must admit, um, my heart was beating really fast hearing what he was saying, Simon. God's really been at work in us and as a church. Um, last year, Luke and I had the joy of working in Zambia. Coming back from this trip, life went downhill quite fast. Rihanna broke her foot, and then Linda became very unwell. And at the same time, a very close friend of Linda died, and she found this really hard and still does. As usual, the run-up to Christmas was manic, and I so wanted to enter into the real Christmas, the peace and the goodwill but I couldn't. Simon mentioned some things last week that really hit home. The first was when he mentioned a crust around your heart. This really struck me, as I'd lost my passion for our community. For me, life was the middle of a long-haul journey. It was boring. 1 John 3, 17 says, If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but then you turn a cold shoulder and do nothing. What happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. The second part was when Simon read Mark ten twenty one. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to have an eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered him, for no one is good except God. And there was a bit of a conversation after that. And at the end, it said, Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
that's what really struck me. It wasn't just what Jesus said. It was the mental picture of Jesus looking at the guy and the expression in Jesus' face. It was seeing the love behind his eyes. Thankfully, Simon asked if anybody would like to respond to, his, to this tender love. I didn't want this crust around my heart. I never asked for it. As I stood, I felt like the crust melt away. I came out of that service a different guy to the one that I went in. I was given a picture. It was a picture that applied to me, and maybe it may apply to you. It was a picture of a switch, a graphic equalizer, like the one at the back, which has been operating, and a fuse board. For some of you, you just need to push the button. Sermon after sermon, you've heard it all before. Well, it's time to stop hearing and to start doing. You need to push the button. For me, it was the equalizer. My levels were completely out of sync, and I just needed to reset. With Linda, it was the fuse board. The death of a close one is likely to trip the switch or to blow a fuse. The rest of the board may be working okay, but sometimes it may take a long time before that fuse will work again. I'm grateful that this week I've had a spring back in my step. Life still isn't always easy, but I'm thankful that the crust around my heart has gone. Simon jokingly mentioned his desire to, to preach less. Well, maybe, with God's help, if we push the button or reset some of our levels, this may be. Thanks, Dave, very much. Uh, indeed, express your appreciation today for sharing his heart with you. So maybe just for a moment, turn to the person next to you. In what ways have you allowed your heart to soften uh, this week? If our hearts don't soften, then the rest of the building of, of this love picture can't take place. Just for 30 seconds with the person next to you, go. Uh, okay, some really important uh, uh, conversations to have with yourself and with the Lord and with other people uh, about what it, what it is for us to uh, allow some of the hardness of our hearts that we've created, as we talked about last time, all kinds of, of good reasons to protect ourselves, to, uh, uh, to, make, to keep ourselves strong, uh, how we need God to, to, to take that crust away, really helpful way of talking about it. Take that, that crust away from our, our hearts that we might have tender hearts. Otherwise, what we're about to explore loses all its bearings. And uh, as we move into this issue of tough love, we have to understand that it needs to be in partnership with tender love or we'll find ourselves uh, mimicking something far from the kind of love that Jesus gave us as an example. So something a bit less familiar then when we think about God's love being tough or when we think about the life of Jesus being uh, an example of love that's tough and hard because instinctively when we talk about Jesus being loving, we think about the kind of things, the kind of examples that we looked at last week. But I, I want to draw your attention to uh, other scriptures that paint a different picture of Jesus, that perhaps if you had just these pictures of Jesus and not the other ones that we know, we'd end up with a differently skewed uh, picture of 
what God's love is really like. Uh, these uh, are all on the, on the lips of Jesus. If you have uh, a Bible with red lettering, and all of these words will be in red. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? It's what Jesus said to the religious people uh, uh, one day when he was out in the marketplace with them. Worse than that, more insulting, uh, perhaps we might say cringily degrading, Jesus said to these Jewish religious leaders who wouldn't even touch a dead body because they believed that that would make them unclean. He said, this is what you're like. You're like all those tombs that are painted white and pretty on the outside, uh, and that's what you give the impression of, but the reality is you're like the inside of those tombs, decaying uh, bodies. It, it, it was an incredibly, um, uh, uh, I don't know what the word would be in our culture, a, a sort of not quite degrading, but a, a really kind of, did he really say that? It's the kind of thing people think, but you're not allowed to say out loud. Did he, did he really say that in that kind of way so publicly that it might be written down for us to read? Remember when Jesus went into the temple and he was so moved by what he saw there uh, uh, that he got a whip out or he made a whip. When was the last time you made a whip as part of your discipleship? When was the last time you got a whip out? And that's what he did there in the temple. And so we get these different pictures, and it's not uh, just uh, with people that Jesus didn't know. The one I want to most uh, think about, or or for us to to get our minds around, is when Jesus engaged with Peter, Uh, those verses that Lynn read to us. You see, Peter was a disciple. Peter was a friend. Peter was one of us. Peter was the in crowd, and and they'd had this marvelous moment when it it seemed that Peter had, had really understood that Jesus was the Messiah and so on, and it was a, a real breakthrough moment. And then within minutes after this breakthrough moment, Jesus turned to Peter, the disciple, one of us, the in crowd, and said, hey, you're Satan. You're Satan. You're of the devil. Now, now even in our context, we can't imagine saying to someone in here, you're of the devil. But that's what Jesus said very straightforwardly in that moment. He looked at Peter and he said, right now, you're of the devil. And the disciples must have been flabbergasted or astonished at least. And we're familiar with it, so it's lost all its impact. We hardly bat an eyelid that the Son of God should turn to one of his key disciples and say, you're of the devil. And then lastly, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus writes to the seven churches and he says all kinds of things about them, he says to the church of Laodicea, well, you're neither hot nor cold, you're nothing really, I just want to spew you out, you know, it's just that horrible, you know, you should be hot or cold, but you're nothing, you're just somewhere in the middle and it's, it's gross, really, so I'll just, I'll just spew you out. So, was Jesus any less loving when he cleared the temple than when he healed the leper? Was Jesus any more loving when he died on the cross than when he was humiliating the religious leaders? Was Jesus more or less loving when he reinstated Peter or when he told Peter that he was acting of the devil? No. No. God is love. In him there is no darkness 
at all. Jesus, our model for what God is like. So how do we understand it? How do we make sense of, of this kind of uh, a side of Jesus? What's the common thread that helps us uh, uh, put a framework together to understand, on the one hand, Jesus could be so amazing with the leper? Uh, and so tender-hearted, and yet so rough in other contexts, in other situations. Well, the common thread that runs through all these events is this. Jesus loved, Jesus loved each one of those people or groups of people so much so that he could not stand by as if he was in the West End of London late one night when someone was walking quickly past in front of an oncoming truck. These people were walking into an oncoming truck spiritually. And Jesus could not stand by and do nothing about it. For Jesus, every time, the most loving thing to do was to offer a challenge that would allow the other people, the other person, to reassess their actions, to rethink their attitudes, to re-decide the behavior that they were on. He loved the Pharisees enough to say, hey guys, you know all of the law, but if you do not realize that God needs to change your hearts, then you are on your way to hell. Jesus couldn't countenance keeping quiet even though he knew that it was not what they wanted to hear. The temple swindlers, Jesus couldn't contemplate leaving these temple traders in all of their ignorance there in the temple that day. Jesus couldn't contemplate allowing Peter to put his hand to a plow, to put his mind behind a decision that was to say that Jesus was not going to go to the cross. And so in all of these examples, same with the church in Laodicea, in all of these examples, Jesus loved the people enough that he would not keep quiet. That he would not stand back and do nothing as they were on their way to a very destructive future. Do we love like that? Does our love for other people allow us to go over or to push through the short-term pain of a challenge in order to see a greater outworking of God's purpose in someone else's life? Does our love for other people allow us to go through short-term pain in order to challenge and enable people to reach a greater purpose of God's work in their lives? The other thing to recognize, I think, is the force with which Jesus did these things is kind of in keeping with the seriousness of the mistakes they were making. If a child steps into the road, you do not say, Oh, Johnny, I think you're in the middle of the road. Would you mind stepping back? Because the, look, the red lorry, Johnny, is coming. Please. As a parent, you scream at young Johnny. So he has no idea what's hit him. Don't you? 
In fact, even when there was no red lorry coming, I would scream at my kids totally disproportionately because I want them, even now, every time they get to the edge of the road, to hear me screaming in the back of their heads. Why? Because it's serious. Stepping on the road is serious. Stepping on the road is something you've got to really think about. And what was going on in the, it was these Pharisees who were the, the, the legal boffins, they were the ones who understood how it all worked in God's kingdom, were totally, totally out of step with what God's purpose was. And so Jesus screams at them like you would a child caught in the road and so on. A discipling relationship, which is what we're after in our lives and in our church, A discipling relationship needs challenge. And sometimes the force of the challenge needs to equate with the seriousness of the situation. And we do that as parents more naturally, don't we? We, In fact, we can see that it's bad parenting not to do this. A good parent will push through the short-term pain in order for the person to develop in their lives. We would say it was bad parenting to allow a child to continue in a, in, in, in a, in a bad pattern of behavior simply because we didn't want the short-term pain of stopping them. Oh, go on then. We overlook things because it doesn't matter. We would say that's a bad way to parent. And what we're being called to is to parent people in the faith and to be parented in the faith. In our spiritual journeys, we need fathers and mothers that we are looking up to, that are leading us on and pulling us forward. In our journey of faith, we need to have other people that we are looking to and and pulling them, encouraging, challenging them on. And so Paul would say uh, about the need for us all to, to have spiritual parents and for us to be spiritual parents to others. He uses that kind of language to talk about discipleship. And that's what Jesus did with his own disciples. He, he loved them, tender love, didn't he? Come follow me. Come and be with me. I will lay down my life for you. I will give you everything. Everywhere you go, you can come with me. That's a huge welcome, isn't it? That's a lot of tender-heartedness. That's a lot of compassion. That's a lot of who he is. But alongside that tender heart, with some moments of really tough challenge. Because unless we are challenged, we will not change. And if we don't change, we'll stay as we are. And if we stay as we are, the life of Jesus will not be perfected in us. True or false? So we have to change. But without challenge, I don't change. I won't change. And the same was true of those disciples. And the same is true. Uh, for you and me. People do not love me when they tell me I'm good at something when I'm not. It stops me growing. People do not love me when wrong behavior goes unchecked or overlooked. It stops me from facing the mistakes that I'm making that perhaps I cannot even see. People do not love me when they fail to be honest with me under a misguided notion of keeping the peace. And we see this right through, not just with Jesus, but with the Apostle Paul and the churches that he raised up. Galatians was one of the early churches. He must have loved that church. And then he writes them, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
You're a witch, you are. What kind of gospel is this? But here is a man who loves these people enough to say, look Galatians, you've begun to lose the plot. You've begun to think that Jesus doesn't give you everything, that you need some other things as well. And Paul is hopping mad and he gives them a well-tough challenge. Why? Because he loves them that much. So often we've invested in relationships that have a peace at all costs kind of philosophy attached to them. Because I love someone, then I don't want to hurt them. Because I love them, I don't want to say something that will upset them. Because I love them, I want to just keep the peace with them. Peace is never something to be maintained despite the truth. That's what Jesus modeled. Peace, never something to be maintained despite the truth. That's not the peace of the Bible at all. Jesus says, come follow me and you will have a peace that's deeper and more profound than this world can ever give you. But by the way, I am the truth and I am the way and therefore I'm the life. Peace, never Something to be kept despite the truth. But we can easily get into a relationship because it's much easier of, of keeping the peace. There was a, an example of this uh, in a church years ago uh, that I went to preach at. Um, we, we were living in Bristol at the time. I was invited to preach uh, uh, in a church in Somerset. Uh, I agreed. I'll, I'll usually preach anywhere at least once. Um, uh, and from the moment I arrived, they began apologizing about the organist. You've all been in churches like that as well. Uh, and uh, 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 they, were, they were sort of sorry about, you know, a playing would be bad and it, it, it makes the, the, the worship difficult and we're sorry about it. We, we just don't know what to do. We can't do anything about it. The story is this, that there was uh, uh, an organist who served the church absolutely brilliantly and beautifully, loved Jesus, played wonderfully and served the church for many years. But old age had taken its toll on this lady and now she was deaf and almost blind. Uh, and so the, the, the organ was way up somewhere in the gods, you know, a typical kind of um, uh, uh, a place situated where the choir would have been. And uh, because she was uh, uh, deaf and, and almost blind, you had to ring a bell at the beginning of the service to say the service was about to start, so she would stop playing. Uh, and then when you wanted the first hymn, you'd ring the bell again, so she'd be ready for the first hymn. But sometimes even the bell wouldn't distract her from what she was doing. And so a duty deacon would go right up into the thing to, to tap her on the shoulder. And I'm thinking, how humiliating for this lady. And they're going, we can't do anything about this. And I understood what they were saying. She served the church. We don't want to hurt her. But what were they doing to her? How dishonoring were they being? How unfair, really. Would she have wanted to be that would, no, she needs someone to love her, to be honest with her, to help her lay down what's been a brilliant season uh, and, and all of that stuff. But, but sometimes it's peace at all costs. And we've lost the ability to love in that way. And maybe we've lost that ability because our hearts are not tender enough in the first place. Because if you are not tender, you have no right to be tough. If you are not tender, 
you have no right to be tough. Think about Jesus, incredibly tender with Peter, big-hearted. You are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Wow, the whole of God's kingdom is investing in Peter. Peter, we love you. We're for you. We're on your side. Massive tenderness and affirmation. Then, you're acting with the devil right now. That's enough. Get behind me. Equally, though, if we operate out of tender love, and our hearts are really soft, then we can find the challenge really difficult as well. And ever so subtly, it seems good at first, but ever so subtly, it begins to erode our relationships from the inside out. Bill Hybels once uh, uh, wrote this in, in one of his books, and I think he puts it really helpfully. Tender-hearted people will go to unbelievable lengths to avoid any kind of turmoil, unrest or upheaval in a relationship. If there's a little tension in a marriage, it doesn't have to be a marriage, the principle can apply to any relationship. If there's tension in a marriage and one partner asks the other what's wrong, the tender one will answer nothing. What he or she is really saying is this, something's wrong but I don't want to make a scene. In choosing peacekeeping over truth-telling, these people think they are being noble. But in reality, they're making a bad choice. Whatever caused the tension will come back. The peace will get harder and harder to keep. A spirit of disappointment will start to flow through the peacekeeper's veins, leading first to anger, then to bitterness, and finally to hatred. Relationships can die while everything looks peaceful on the surface. In your relationships, are you more inclined to tender or tough love? In your marriage, are you more tender or tough? With your kids, are you more tender and tough? With those that you're discipling, are you more tender? You love to encourage them, but you find it jolly hard to challenge them. Or are you so busy challenging them that you never encourage, you're never tender? A warning. A warning. There are times when someone really gets to you. You ever had that? Someone ever really got to you? <laughs> and, and you're fuming about it. It's really got you. And you've had it up to here with them anyway. And it's about time someone jolly well sorted them out. And this is my opportunity. And off you go to give them a jolly good slapping. And because you're a good Christian, you will say to them, I'm only saying this in... No, you're not. No, you're not. Absolutely not. No, you're not. Even if you have to say it, you're not. Absolutely not. It's not what we're talking about. And it's such a massive abuse to use our, uh, our inability to love wholesomely uh, and to take our anger and bitterness out on other people. This is not speaking the truth of love. What's coming out then is your anger, your frustration, your bitterness. 
It's not your love, but your pain that's speaking. And it's that pain that will be received, not the love that you have for them. It's not a righteous anger, but a self-interest one. If you're going to speak to someone, what is my motive? What's going? Didn't Jesus say, before you deal with the speck in someone else's, sort out the whacking great plank in your own? Yeah? What's, it's about you first. What's my motive here? What am I about here? What will make me happy or sad here? If telling them, getting it off your chest, feels like it'll make you happy, you're not ready. If you do not yet feel the pain that you will create for them, you're not ready. What's my motive? What am I doing in this? What is the state of my heart? What's God doing in me through all that's going on? And what good can I see? I can't see any good in them. Well, you're not ready. Because there's good and there's ugly in all of us. You and me included. True discipleship requires true friendship. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. What was the friendship? He loved them to the nth degree. He would lay down his life for them. His heart was so tender, so compassionate you would not believe. But on times when they were shipwrecking their lives, he was as tough as old boots. And that's the walk of discipleship. As you disciple people, you need to love them right up here with tender love. And you need to be willing on times to say something that's tough and that's hard and that's important for them to hear. So the final question is this. If you want to disciple others, you yourself need to be discipled. Which means if you want to be able, as God leads you to challenge others, which you should and you must, then you need to be willing to be challenged yourself. How good am I at being challenged? How good am I at being challenged? How do you respond when someone generally tries to reach through the issue and rescue you from something that you haven't quite seen clearly yet because you're a fallen, broken human being, struggling like everyone else to follow Jesus? Let's pray.